Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Florida author Patrick Smith remains in hospice care following a fall last Thanksgiving when he broke his shoulder and hip and injured his knee. Before that fall, we spoke with Smith about his much-loved novel, A Land Remembered. I wasn't really sure what I was creating because it was such a monstrous job. As President Obama leads 47 nations in reducing the threat from nuclear weapons, we remember Florida's role in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which placed the world on the brink of nuclear war. There were nothing but a whole city of tents with red crosses on them for wounded. From Cuba, we expected an invasion. We expected casualties. We'll look at the new book, The 57 Club, My Four Decades in Florida Politics by Fred Carl. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When fiddle and steel guitar, better country music than you hear in the bars. Beat up boots on a Friday night, pants blazing up, standing in the firelight. Pulling on down, we jump in. Lake Hancock, let the party begin. Tailgate drop down, music playing loud. Everybody dancing to the country sound. Four wheel drive and ATVs. Mama calls us crazy like we got a disease. Caretaking knows we ain't doing no harm. Florida track country boys is all we are. That's Patrick Gibson from Apopka singing about contemporary Florida crackers. The term Florida cracker refers to pioneer settlers of the state from the 1700s and 1800s and their modern-day descendants. Patrick Gibson was two years old when Pineapple Press first published the Patrick Smith novel A Land Remembered in 1984. A Land Remembered tells the story of the fictional Florida pioneer family the McGiveys from the mid-1800s through the mid-20th century. If you ask just about anyone who knows anything about Florida history and culture to choose one book that is a must-read about Florida, the almost unanimous choice is Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered. Patrick Smith says that he wanted to explore issues that Floridians have had to deal with over the past few hundred years by bringing a pioneer family to life for modern readers. It was to explore a lot of issues about Florida, and too, I wanted to make that family real to show the reader what they went through. You know, not just tell them it was a great freeze in 1895, but how did this affect that family? And how were they affected by the coming of the railroads, the birth of the cattle industry, and the Civil War? And then later on, how were they affected by that great land boom down in Miami in the 1920s? And that hurricane that did Lake Okeechobee in 1928 and killed over 2,000 people. These are all things that really happened in Florida, but the important thing to me was to show how they affected people. In Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered, the McGivey family faces one adversity after another, trying to create a ranch and orange grove in the rough Florida wilderness. 
After three generations of respecting the land and its native inhabitants, the last generation of McIvies makes a fortune by developing Florida land with no regard for the environmental impact. Smith says that the McIvies are not based on any one Florida family. It composites of a lot of different families. I met a lot of families when I was traveling around in Florida doing research that resemble the McIvy family. They came here back in the 19th century. They lived that kind of life. But I've had at least a dozen families in this state swear to me that that book is about their family, you know. A land remembered has not been used without controversy in Florida schools. A student-friendly version was created for younger readers, eliminating curse words and the racially insensitive N-word from the text. The book has accumulated many accolades, and Patrick Smith has been placed in the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. Some of the letters, you know, that I get about this novel are really, really touching, heartbreaking. I got a letter one time that a man when he was dying of cancer, her father, all he wanted to hear before he died was his favorite passage out of the land remembered. And she read it to him and he died while she was reading that. I got an email yesterday from a young man in Iraq. He said that he took his book over with him when he went over there. He's in the army. He said he's read it seven times since he's been in Iraq. He said it's now kind of worn out by wind and sand of the desert, but he's ordered another one so he can keep reading. I've got just literally hundreds of letters from young kids in this state who've read that, you know, in the third through the eighth grade. And they all say that before they read it, they had no interest in Florida history. They knew nothing about this state. And now they're very eager to learn all they can about Florida. It's gratifying. People have been writing about Florida since the first non-indigenous people started coming here in the 1500s. Over the past 200 years, renowned novelists with work set in Florida range from James Fenimore Cooper and William Gilmore Sims to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings and Zora Neale Hurston. But arguably, no Florida novel is more revered and loved than Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered. Morris O'Sullivan is the Kenneth Curry Professor of Literature at Rollins College. He is co-editor of The Florida Reader and Florida Poetry, A History of the Imagination, and author of other books about Florida literature. Patrick Smith's book really does stand alone. I actually first heard about it from Sloan Wilson, who became a cult figure for his novel, The Man in the Gray Final Suit, which was turned into a very popular film with Gregory Peck. And Sloan moved to Central Florida in the late 1970s. Since he was here, we asked him to teach a creative writing course. I got to know him fairly well. And one day, he confided to me that his real reason for moving to Florida was that he wanted to write the great Florida book. He wanted to do for Florida what James Michener had done for Hawaii and Texas. A couple of years later, Sloan told me he was leaving, he was going back north. And I asked him why, and reminded him about the Florida book. He asked me if I had read A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith. I said no. And he said, the epic Florida novel has been written. Many people share Sloan Wilson's assessment, declaring the epic tale of the McIvey family to be the best Florida novel yet written. Morris O'Sullivan. There have been a couple of other 
attempts to do a saga like The Land Remembered, but there's nothing that matches it in terms of its scope, its readability, its continuing fascination for generations of students and adults. And I think that's because it has a little bit of everything. It has cowboys and Indians, it has settlements and businessmen, it has romance and gunfights and knife fights, it has adventure and mystery. There isn't anything that it doesn't have. And it appeals to people because of the multi-generational aspect of it, so that it's able to provide a continuing history of Florida as the McIvies move further and further south, just as all of us moved further and further south in Florida. A Land Remembered has become so popular that it has overshadowed some of Patrick Smith's other books about Florida, such as Forever Island, The River is Home, and Angel City, which was made into a film for television by CBS. Smith says that A Land Remembered may also be adapted for film. A Land Remembered is under option right now to a film company, but that doesn't mean absolutely they're going to film it. That's an option. But this company, just as soon as they got the option, they uh, had a screenwriter working on a, a, a script. So it looks promising. Patrick Smith is proud that A Land Remembered remains such a popular book because he believes that people today need to be aware of Florida history. They just should know what this state once was, how it's evolved and how different it was. My first contact with Florida was in 1935. I was an eight-year-old kid and I came down here and spent three weeks with my family on a vacation. And I still have memories of what this state was like that long ago. Because I was married in 1948 in the land, my wife's native land, and it was so different then. But a lot of people, you know, that come to Florida today, move here or visit, they believe that this state has always been the home of Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. They just have no idea, you know. The whole thing started right here when Ponce de Leon landed here. It didn't start out in California or Arizona and Texas. It all started right here. Having documented so much Florida history, Pat Smith has tried to follow in the footsteps of the man credited with discovering Florida, Juan Ponce de Leon. Born in 1927, Smith says that he has paid attention to the traditional story that Ponce came to Florida to find the Fountain of Youth. It was rumored, too, that he found it, the Leon Springs, which is just above the land. It was said back in the 40s and back then, if you go out to the Leon Springs and dip yourself in that water, you know, you'd stay young forever. And if you were old, you'd rejuvenate yourself. My wife and I used to go out there all the time <laughs> to spring and dip ourselves in that water. It didn't work. <laughs> Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered is published by Pineapple Press. Mama calls us crazy like we gather the seeds. A care chicken knows we ain't doing no harm. Florida cracker country boys is all we are. Florida cracker country boys. Oh, we 
You're listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Under the leadership of President Obama, 47 nations have agreed to secure nuclear material by 2014, reducing significantly the threat of nuclear bombs being built by terrorists. In October of 1962, the world was on the brink of nuclear war with the United States and the former Soviet Union. As Janie Gould explains, the flashpoint for this nuclear crisis was just off the coast of South Florida. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 brought the world to the brink of nuclear annihilation. ...policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. President Kennedy of the United States has announced that he had given orders to the American military. Fort Pierce City Commissioner Duke Nelson was an Army officer at the time. He was stationed at the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, when he got orders to take on a new mission in Washington. He thought he was going to be going to Washington, D.C. I went in the next morning for a briefing and they said we we're going to Washington State. And the mission was to uh, check the equipment they got out there and go to the, the depot and get those squared away and put that stuff on a train and have it shipped down to these various key places in Florida. Well, I did that. Lo and behold, I ended up being in charge of the missile efforts for Homestead, Key West, MacDill, and Cape Kennedy. My scary part about that, as we put the equipment on the train, and of course I caught a plane and came back here to Florida. Naturally, the plane beat the train here. So I was here with virtually nothing to do except walk around and act like a tourist. While he was playing tourist in South Florida, he saw a sure sign that something big might be in the works. It was in the Fort Lauderdale area. There he saw makeshift hospitals that obviously had been put up in a hurry. Tents with red crosses on them, and there was a pot full of them. Ooh, there were nothing but a whole city of tents with red crosses on them for wounded. From Cuba, we expected an invasion. We expected casualties. And I realized it was serious. And then I sat in my car to hear President Kennedy come on the radio and speak and tell us what was going on. And I really got terrible. scared. Nuclear weapons are so destructive, and ballistic missiles. I had, are had so not been in combat. I've been in the military then, about five years at the most. Here I am now, faced with a possible invasion, going into Cuba, or them coming over us, or them bombing us, or us bombing them, and I might end up out there with all these tents at the hospital city. 
I was scared. I'd be honest with you. I was really scared. Well, the crisis passed, of course, after about a week. I guess you were relieved. Yeah, I was more relieved than you can imagine. For Nelson, one of the most memorable parts of the whole episode took place when he and three white colleagues tried to get rooms in a motel. I remember during this time we were steep in segregation. I had a team of both military and civilian people working for me. And I recall uh, going down to Homestead to get a motel. I was sitting in the right rear of the car, and the driver is a white guy, and the ward officer was in the car, and somebody else, the clerk or somebody came out and said, what do you want, may I help you? We said we wanted rooms. They said, y'all can get some, but he pointed to me, I couldn't get in the room there. You got to go elsewhere. And of course that infuriated my team and myself as well. I guess that's when I learned to be cool, so to speak. But Nelson posed a question to the desk clerk. Do you realize who I am and what we're here for and all this? He didn't stop Castro and all this kind of stuff. I said, well, you know, if we're not successful in what we're doing, he comes over here with your principles, what you're talking about, the rules that your management is trying to perpetuate here, it's just going to be something you're going to forget about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, they wanted to go away, and I said, no, 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 I was the man in charge. You go in here and get a room, and y'all sleep and get rested up and everything. I drove back to the Air Force Base there. I was supposed to have lived in what you call officer's quarters, but naturally they were all filled up, so I ended up sleeping in the car. I reported this incident uh, sometimes later. After it was all over, about a month, month and two and so, I went back to that same motel and was allowed to go in there with no problem at all. So I learned from that experience, be cool, be calm, follow procedures, but most of all, I was inculcated with the idea that as a military person, your first primary job is to accomplish the mission. Do what you set out to do. You write your reports, you take action to correct the problems that you encounter so you don't have repeat. And that's what we did, and I think it worked out fine. Duke Nelson retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel in 1979. He's been serving on the Fort Pierce City Commission for the past 12 years. Janie Gould from WQCS in Fort Pierce prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The St. Petersburg Times once called him the conscience of the House when he ran for governor in 1964. Bill Dudley reports on a new memoir by a man who was present for some of the most turbulent times in modern Florida politics. Well, I don't want you to think I'm a do-gooder. I'm not a crusader. I just conducted myself as honorably as I could. Now in his mid-80s, Fred Carl looks back on a lifetime of public service in his new book, The 57 Club, My Four Decades in Florida Politics. Born in Florida while his mom was vacationing on the East Coast, Carl spent his early youth in Michigan. The family moved to Daytona in 1929. As a child, I I loved it. We had access to the beach. I could go there whenever I felt like it. I had um, a lot of friends. It was a nice little community, but the undercurrent of racial troubles was there. There was a lynching in Daytona that I remember. After distinguished service during World War II, where he was wounded at the Battle of the Bulge, Carl returned to Florida, where he completed a law degree at nearby Stetson University in DeLand. Then he entered private practice in Daytona. But Carl's dad had been in local politics in Michigan, and his mother's cousin was that state's governor and later a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. famous saying in our family was, it wasn't didn't originate in our family, but we used it a lot. There's no higher form of public service than the honest practice of politics. And so I was sort of almost bred into me. He soon found a way to enter Florida's political arena. A seat in the legislature opened up in 1956. I was about the only one in the whole county who thought I had a chance to win. 
When I looked around, I found that the newspaper was committed to the incumbent's hand-picked successor, and they had the, a lot of the business community. The other candidate, he was the son of a deputy and a sheriff's officer, a constable, and he had the courthouse gang in the labor union, and there wasn't anybody left to organize support. So I just went to the people, went on the radio, and campaigned from door to door and things like that, and I was successful. But before taking his seat, Carl visited a legislative session where he was struck by the viciousness of the racial disputes that permeated the proceedings. And I was so impressed with the intensity of the feelings about it. Things that were said on the floor were just atrocious. The tension of that special session affected me so that I became interested in that subject more than I'd ever been. Florida, in the early 1950s, was a rural, segregated, deep south state controlled by a small group of powerful men, mostly from the northern counties. As late as 1960, a majority of Florida's Senate and House seats were elected by less than 15% of its voters. University of Florida historian David Colburn. The rural members of the legislature really wanted to keep Florida society, its culture, and racial segregation intact. They did not want any of that changed, and their constituents supported them. So Fred Carl, when he comes into the legislature, confronts a legislature dominated by rural politicians who have gerrymandered the state so they control or continue to control the state legislature. And you have the Brown decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that puts the fear of God in them, and they are more determined than ever to maintain control. Fred Carl took his seat in the Florida House as one of a group of freshman legislators taking office in 1957. There were 39 of us, all male, all white. It was a freshman of 1957, and we formed a club called the 57 Club. Dempsey Barron was selected to be the president of it. Almost from the start, he says he was impressed by the fraternal nature of the legislature. I had learned in the practice of law you can go into court and have a bitter confrontation over the legal points and argue with uh, your adversary and then be friendly after. And so it was in the legislature pretty much. But he also learned the role of the lobbyist in influencing political outcome. I learned that real quick. I'm sitting at my desk in the floor of the house and a man came up to me and said, do you believe that young women ought to be made to work on Sundays and holidays, even though they're pregnant? And I said, no, that doesn't sound like that. It's something I'd like to see done. Carl put his signature on the new bill. Within a day or two, the lobbyist for the telephone company came to see me. And he's very patient. He said, I know you're new here, but he said, let me tell you, you've got a law in the books that require that the utilities, the telephone companies and others, will have to be open 24 hours a day, every day. They don't get Sundays or holidays off. We've got to have people to work with us. If you pass this law that says you can't make somebody work on Sundays as a condition of employment, we're going to have a hard time to keep up our part of the law. And so I had to take my name off the bill. And it taught me you need to think through propositions that you're confronted with from time to time. Carl soon realized he was on the outside of the small county block, the house counterpart of the infamous pork chop gang in the Florida Senate. These rural conservatives controlled the legislature and decided the state's future. At that time, the, the county governments were just branches of the state legislature, and they didn't have any individual power. The county commissioners couldn't pass ordinances. And so the legislature did all the local stuff. The governor was weak. The governor could only serve one four-year term. And he had to share his power with the cabinet. 
So the legislature had the dominant role. These were tense times in a state whose citizens were sharply divided over racial integration, particularly in schools. Carl remembers the turbulent events surrounding the so-called last resort bill. This was a bill that a segregationist fashioned to close the schools before they let their children go to school with the black children. And so they came up with a bill that if people were concerned about one of their public facilities, didn't run limited just to school, they would apply to libraries or hospitals or any public facility. They could have a referendum on whether to close the facility. And if they, they voted to close it, it was closed. It was a vicious bill. It was just, you think about it, what could happen under that bill. You could close the library, you could close the schools, you could just destroy the educational system in it. So we had to beat that bill, and it passed the Senate, passed the House. Governor Leroy Collins vetoed the bill, but Carl and his friends had to quickly marshal support to uphold the veto. In the end, the bill was defeated after an intense struggle. Florida politics in the 1950s were marked by the ever-present specter of corruption. Government in the sunshine was unheard of. Fred Carl remembers a Jefferson County fishing trip where he and a fellow 57 clubber stopped by Nuttall Rise, a private camp owned by a prominent Tallahassee lobbyist to provide various forms of entertainment for state legislators. And I thought I heard him talking in there in the living room saying, the lobbyist saying to my friend, do you need any money? And my friend said no, he, he didn't need anything. But I remembered who the lobbyist was and remembered it to this day. Early on, Carl became a leader in education legislation, bucking his fiscally conservative colleagues. Education was in terrible shape because there was no money going and flowing to the schools, no more real money. There was bitter debates about the sporting education. Small county people just resisted any additional financing for the schools. But Fred Carl pushed through bills for a free textbook program and dramatic changes in teachers' compensation. Then, after serving eight years in the Florida House, he made an unsuccessful try for governor in 1964 and came in last. My friends used to say that uh, we finished in the inverse order of our competence. But that didn't help me a bit. Fred Carl thought he was out of state politics, but in 1968, a group that included even some of his political enemies urged him to run for a seat in the Florida Senate. There, he championed consumer protection law, passing bills regulating HMOs and workers' compensation, and instituting no-fault automobile insurance. And he came up against Florida's first 20th century Republican governor, Claude Kirk. He was slippery, he was smart, and he was bold. And he was capable of almost anything. He was, he was an interesting man. Fred Carl became the state's first public counsel in 1974. Two years later, he was elected justice of the Florida Supreme Court. Resigning in 1978, he moved to Tampa, serving as county attorney, then administrator of Hillsborough County, then president of Tampa General Hospital, and finally Tampa City Attorney, stepping down in 2004. At last, the 80-year-old Carl had officially retired. Some scholars believe Fred Carl and some of his fellow 57 clubbers were in the vanguard of the new era in Florida politics. In the 19, late 1960s and the 70s, Florida had a very distinguished state legislature, you know, with some exceptions, but Florida in the late 60s and 70s is considered a state to have one of the most professional state legislatures in the country. Fred was in the vanguard of that, and I think deserves a fair amount of credit. At a time when we're so concerned about the lack of integrity and the absence of ethics, Fred Carl is 
a flashback to what should be. University of South Florida political science professor and analyst Susan McManus. He was an incredibly ethical individual and a very kind and caring person, yet at the same time willing to be bold on human rights and civil rights issues at a time when that was very uncomfortable for many politicians. You had tension from racial things. You had tension from the reapportionment. You had tension from trying to get money for the schools. The resistance to the lobbyist influence. But in spite of it, I enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it and got a lot done. The 57 Club, My Four Decades in Florida Politics, is published by University Press. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.